Well, this feels almost like it's the first real European election because there is a battle over the soul of Europe. It's complicated, chaotic, and yes, just a little bit dull. The EU elections may not have been on your radar, but that should change this year, especially if you're one of the more than 350 million eligible voters in the 27 European member states. That's minus one after the UK goes. From May 23 to 26, voters will cast their ballots in what's being seen as a referendum on the 60-year-old European experiment. This episode is going to tell you how the institutions work, what they'll look like post-Brexit, and what it means to ride the gravy train. All aboard as we get up to speed on the European Union elections of 2019. And we've brought in the big guns to help explain. Uh, I'm Ryan Heath, and I'm the political editor at Politico Europe. So tell us, Ryan, what is the European Parliament? Where is it? How many people are in it? Oh, what a fascinating question. The European Parliament is actually in two locations. So it's in Brussels in Belgium and Strasbourg in France, which is right on the border with Germany and a city that's been passed back and forth between the two countries for centuries. And the Parliament itself is a collection of 750 representatives from around Europe, the 28 European Union countries, soon to be 27 if Britain does indeed leave. So you've got more than 700 lawmakers shuttling back and forth between these two European cities? That is absolutely right. There's even a special train that we refer to as the gravy train. (laughs) That transports paper files uh, every month down to Strasbourg. But that's seen as important because it's a symbol of European unity and to say that not everything takes place in Brussels, that there is distributed power in the EU. Because one of the big criticisms is that uh, Brussels, in inverted commas, uh, takes all of these decisions on behalf of countries and ordinary people. And so they try and uh, distribute that sense of, of where EU decisions are made. Why the gravy train, though? What's the Where does that name come from? Uh, well... Well, it's because it's a very uh, expensive exercise. So you're literally moving thousands of people every month to do the exact same job in a second city that they were doing perfectly well in the first city. So it's a bit of a joke that all of these people get to travel in first-class train carriages in order to do that. And I think probably that's a little bit tough on them because they actually work really long hours and it's not pleasant for them to have to move around to these two different cities. At the same time, they're being paid very well. Here comes the money! Here we go, money talks. Here comes the money. They're being paid very well. Uh, it's you, If you're a member of the European Parliament, you make more than 8,000 euros a month, which is uh, probably about 10,000 US dollars a month. And that is a lot of money by the standards of most Europeans. But isn't that just on the financial side, but we'll get back to basics again in a second, but isn't that one of the criticisms as well is the money that's spent having it in Brussels and in Strasbourg and all the, the costs associated with that? Isn't that another criticism against the Parliament? Absolutely. And in fact, a majority of the members of the parliament would like it to be based in Brussels only. But it's France as the host of the Strasbourg parliament who won't give it up and they have a veto over the decision. And I always like to say that the EU is cheaper than another war. And that's why the EU was set up to stop a war. So however expensive this is, uh, it's not the same as... 
Yeah, exactly. Okay, so can you just explain the difference between the EU Parliament, the EU Commission and the EU Council briefly? It doesn't need to go into too much detail, but just... Mm -hmm to give everyone a bit of understanding. Yeah, so the European Commission is the most important one. They're the people who actually draft the legislation and they're kind of like the civil service that exists in each country. So they're the executive arm of the EU. The parliament is the voice of the people and then the European Council is the voice of the elected national governments. And the point is they're supposed to balance each other out and bring different perspectives to the table and then to make a piece of legislation or a regulation a reality, uh, those three institutions need to come up with a compromise text. So nothing can happen without your national government, the MEPs you voted for, and these expert civil servants all coming to a compromise agreement. So who are they voting for uh, in the upcoming elections? Well, there's probably going to be about 5,000 candidates across Europe. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of a smaller parliament this time round, only 705 members. And that's because of the UK. Uh, On its way out. Yeah, exactly. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. And uh, they will all compete uh, in a, a cacophony, let's say, of electoral processes. So there's not one election system. It all happens according to national rules. And the smaller countries get a minimum of six seats. So actually, you need less votes to get elected in those small countries than you do somewhere like Germany, where you need 300,000 votes. So it's a bit strange because uh, all votes are not created equal, let's say. It might take you only 30 or 40,000 votes in a country like Malta or Estonia to get elected, whereas in Germany, you need that 300,000 votes. Right. So is the idea to stop the smaller countries from being trampled from the likes of France and Germany? Exactly. But a lot of the people in the smaller countries still feel like their voice doesn't count. So in in a country like Slovakia or the Czech Republic, less than 20% of people vote. So uh, even though there is that sort of slight advantage built into the system for those smaller countries, that doesn't mean everyone turns out to vote. What other sorts of checks are in place to stop the bigger countries from just making this their way of getting across legislation that favors them at the expense of smaller states? Mm -hmm. Well, the way the parliament is organized, it tends to be along fairly traditional political parties rather than country lines. So people can always join forces as a political party uh, to try and, and block any given idea. And a lot of the decisions taken by the EU leaders, they need a consensus before they can come to a decision. So that means even if you're a small country, you can stick your hand up and say, I'm not doing this. And that counts just as much as Germany saying it doesn't want to do it. Okay. And how much power does the EU parliament have over Europe as a whole? Uh, It really depends on the issue. And I would say overall, it doesn't have a lot of power. But when it comes to something like a trade agreement, uh, the parliament can, can block the entire thing. So that is something that's really quite powerful. If you think about uh, what the UK and the EU might do together after Brexit, if the parliament's not happy, they can just say, no way, Jose, we're not having this free trade agreement. And that really will affect the lives of people in Britain and to a lesser extent the EU, but that will have a significant impact. And also they were the driving force behind some of the more popular EU policies, like getting rid of mobile roaming charges. Oh, fantastic. We like that one. Yeah, I think that was a very popular one across Europe. (laughs) So would you say that trade and um, regulation are the parliament's biggest remit? Yes, that's a really fair description. Uh, And they're almost not involved at all in some of the other high profile parts of the EU's work, like competition policy. So uh, your listeners, they might uh, know about a woman called Margaret Vestager, or some of her decisions where she, for example, ordered that Apple pay back 14 billion euros in back taxes. This decision sends a clear message. 
Member States cannot give unfair tax benefits to selected companies. And she fined other companies like Google several billion euros at a time. And the parliament really doesn't have any say in those decisions. That's something that she undertakes as an independent regulator. And and they don't let politicians have a say over those decisions. So this must be one of the biggest democratic exercises in the world. On election day, what does it actually look like? How are people voting? What language are they voting in? How do their uh, ballots actually get to a centralized place where they're counted? Um, It is one of the biggest, in fact, the second biggest in the world. So more people vote in this election than in the United States presidential election. That's not but that it's hard. Less than India. <laughs> well, it is hard if you're from a small country. <laughs> so that's what that's what makes this the bar is not high. Is all I'm saying. I think it's like 55 percent in presidential elections each year. Exactly. And I wish it was a simple uh, process of tallying up the votes. It would make my life easier on election night. But actually, all of it happens uh, via the national election authorities. So there's no regulated time when the votes have to be in. There's no uh, single software that they load it all into. You can't look up a single screen and and watch all the different countries come in, it will be a bunch of uh, frantic journalists and interns uh, sitting there <laughs> trying to piece together this puzzle I don't uh, mean to give to be a bit rude, of a picture of what's happening. But after having lived in Europe for three and a half years now, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it's a good metaphor for the way things are done a lot of the time. People was, running around with papers in their hands. Exactly. It was fascinating trying to get the Dutch government to tell us what they were doing. Now, the Dutch pride themselves on being efficient and that they're so much more sensible than these other lazy countries in Southern yeah. Europe and so on and then trying to find out how we get their results they were like oh well you need to go to the 31 regional town halls and then you just collect them in person convenient i was like "Hmm." very sensible so you're saying that unless i have 31 journalists and i can afford to pay them a salary i can't find out who won the election no you can't that's the only way i guess you'll never be able to call their bluff that way (laughs) but on the other hand it's a very hard election to hack if you're russia yeah. It's very difficult to hack because how do you go and do this in 27 different ways in thousands of town halls and schools across Europe? It's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, to their credit, it's an enormously difficult exercise, I would imagine. Yeah, and I would say that considering how difficult it is, I mean, I always thought that the voter turnout seemed quite low. It normally sits around 40, between 40 and 50 percent. But considering how perhaps unpopular they are and how difficult they are, that's actually quite high. Uh, yes, and it really varies from country to country. So they're at 42% at the moment, and it's dropped every election for eight elections in a row. And that includes countries like Belgium and Luxembourg, where it's 85% of people voting because it's a compulsory system. So that really shows you that in some countries, we really are down in the 20s and the 30s. In fact, in about half of the countries, it's, it's 20s and 30s. So that is not where you want to be if you're looking to have a sustainable organization or say that you're really speaking on behalf of everybody. Well, exactly. That brings me to to something I'm quite interested in. What's their mandate like if only 20% of people say in some countries are voting? Yeah, that's the difficult situation. It's not a very strong mandate. And then you also have the situation where the European Commission, uh, you can't really vote for any of them on a ballot paper, even though the president of the commission does put himself on a global stage. It's always been a him so far and uh, tries to speak on behalf of Europe. And I think a lot of people don't find that very credible because that person is very removed from their daily life. They didn't have the opportunity to vote for them. And so it's really hard to say that you represent people when actually you're just the nominee of a parliament. 
Right. So this is an incredibly opaque process. Thank you so much for walking us through it a little bit. But it's also one that people don't pay attention to all that often. But this year seems to be a bit different. Can you tell us why the elections are important in 2019 and why people should be paying attention? Well, this feels almost like it's the first real European election because there is a battle over the soul of Europe. And should there be a European Union that continues to integrate more and more? Or does this project, in fact, have to stop or be rewound or, or split up? Now, I it's think It's a referendum that, on the EU experiment in some Yeah, some exactly. And I think it's highly unlikely uh, that the people who want to end the EU are going to win. By all the calculations we can do and all the opinion polls that we've analysed, uh, those Eurosceptical groups might win about 25% of the vote, but they're not going to win anything close to 50% of the vote. At the same time, this is very different to the previous elections where uh, the two main parties both believed in the EU, not a huge amount of difference between the two of them, and they always won a majority of seats in the parliament. They're just not going to do that next time around. So it's going to be a very fragmented environment, and so that's going to mean less things are achieved next time, there's going to be more lobbying, because it's going to take a lot of extra effort to build a majority for anything in the parliament, and it will be a very different type of discussion. But that seems in step with domestic governments, or the you know largely the world over, actually, that there are governments are turning to be away from two-party systems and into more fragmented systems anyway. So that's in keeping with the global trend. Exactly. And the way this parliament works is everyone is elected by proportional representation. So it's not like the two-party system that you see in a country like the United States or even in the UK, where there's two main parties and a few smaller parties. It's really not like that. If you get 1% of the vote in Germany, you get a seat, for example, because Germany has 96 seats to send to the parliament. So it is really something where a lot of minor parties get a voice. And then that is, you know, good for making sure everyone is included, but it means less comes out at the end of the system. I just want to ask you then, so there are no British candidates, obviously, no no British representatives. Well, <laughs> Why would that or- be? Yeah, there will, well, there'll be no members of the parliament from Britain, but here's the interesting thing. There are 3 million people from the EU 27 countries who live in Britain, and they're all entitled to vote. So actually, there are 3 million people in Britain who could be voting on election day. Wow. And if you are someone who is <laughs> wow. British but has an EU passport and are living in one of those other 27 countries, you're free to stand in the election as well. Wow. Trying to disentangle themselves unsuccessfully. Yeah, exactly. It is like Hotel California. They're not ever going to leave. <laughs> so I know we need to let you go um, in the next couple of minutes. What are the most important things to be watching? in these elections? Uh, I think the thing is to see how well people like Matteo Salvini, uh, the Italian populist leader, how well he can cast himself as an opponent of someone like Emmanuel Macron and the centrist parties. Whether the voters buy him as a viable alternative, you mean? Yeah, exactly. But also who he can bring in in his kind of wake. Uh, He if he is able to unite the Eurosceptic parties, then they could be the largest force in the parliament. At the moment, they're divided into three or four different groups. So they don't really have the impact that they could have, whereas the centrist parties, uh, you know, they just generally stick together in a more coherent fashion. And if someone like Matteo Salvini can do better than Marine Le Pen at uniting those forces, then that really changes the game in Brussels. Then you almost have an opposition leader in Brussels, and we've never had that before. Well, Ryan Heath, it's been enlightening Thank you so much. I feel much smarter now than I did 15 minutes ago. Um, oh, that was really fun. I love spreading the gospel. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Sondern alle, die davon überzeugt sind, 
Everyone who believes that the multilateral project of Europe was the right answer to the lessons of history and is the right answer to the challenges of the future must stand together in this conviction and work together respectfully to find solutions. That brings you up to date with what to look out for in the upcoming EU elections. Hope it's piqued your interest. Stay tuned to see whether this show of democracy can reinvigorate the 27-member country club and whether populist parties can leverage anti-Europe sentiment to increase their share of the pie. If you want to wonk out more on the ins and outs of Brussels, check out Politico Europe's EU Confidential podcast with Ryan Heath. Until next time, I'm Claire Richardson. And I'm Rebecca Ritters.